Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. Following Christ's interaction with the young, rich, rich young ruler and Jesus' warning that it is difficult, in fact impossible, for those who are rich, dependent on themselves, to be saved. And after saying, with God all things are possible, the scriptures now read verse 27. Then Peter said to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you, have, you, who, you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers, For a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard, and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner and saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as you as to you. It is not lawful for me is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first last. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, 
bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. And, but Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup, what I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Amen. This is God's word. We've covered a lot of ground. Let's ask that the Spirit of God will help us now to understand. Our God and our Father in heaven, we come to you and thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son who spoke these words. And we pray that as just as you taught the at least the eleven disciples the truth and how they served you so faithfully in the rest of their ministry, we pray that we too would understand and that you would impress the truths that you have for us upon our hearts today, and that we might live out these truths even this day and this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus has interacted with this man that we call the rich young ruler. He was a young man who was wealthy, and as we saw last week, wealth there is a sign in that culture of blessing. The disciples assumed that because this man was blessed, that he was rich, he was blessed of God. And again, if you think of it, what wealth and money gives you is a sense of independence and of self-sufficiency. That's the key to understand. There's nothing wrong with money or wealth, per se. The love of money is wrong. But what Jesus is saying, he's not saying that rich people are in a particularly evil category. No, not at all. For as I pointed out, it was a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, after all, who was the first man to go to Pilate with courage and ask for Jesus' body. And yet, the challenge with wealth is that you become used to being independent. You become used to the idea, here's the key, I can do that. And when it comes to the kingdom, no, you can't. You have no means, you have no ability, I have no means or ability, whether it be ability to do good works, whether it be a certain amount of of righteousness or a certain amount of wealth, there is no buying your way into the kingdom, whether with money or with good works. You are solely on your Rather, we are all solely dependent upon the grace of God. We are saved by grace alone. Grace alone. 
God, however, is able to save those who are self-sufficient. Excuse me. How does he do that? By breaking them down. By breaking the self-sufficient, the proud down, sometimes taking the rich, stripping them of their wealth, and helping them understand their true condition. For the entrance into the kingdom of God is the same for every man, every boy and girl. Oh God, I am helpless. I have no ability to save myself. Oh God, I cry, have mercy upon me, a sinner. We, no matter who we are, we are in truth not all that different from the thief on the cross. A man who just moments before was cursing the Lord, who obviously on the cross had no money or means, and certainly didn't exactly have a record of good works. All he had for hope was the mercy of the Savior next to him, and that's all that all of us have. With God, all things are possible. Excuse me. Peter says to Jesus, verse 27, Behold, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Now on the surface, on the face of it, we think, Peter, here you go again, asking a dumb question or a, a, a childish question. I mean, Peter, you don't ask Jesus. However, there's nothing in the text that indicates that Peter's wrong here. In fact, this, this question actually can be an expression of Peter's faith. They have actually left everything. There's nothing in the text or in Jesus' words that indicates that Peter is lying. It's the truth. And we, we should respect these men. I mean, think about it. Peter and some of the other men have entire businesses that when Jesus came and said to them, follow me, they left. They left everything. They left their business. So think about it. Think about your context right now. You sell it all. It's all done. And you leave and you go in absolute complete dependence upon the Lord and his provision. Wow. This is what these men have done. And so it's true that they've left everything. And Peter's asking, well, we've left everything. What there will there be for us? Jesus responds. He doesn't rebuke. But he responds, and he wants the disciples to understand something, and he wants us to understand something. Verse 28, truly, I say to you, truly. Jesus is not saying truly somehow just because he needs, you know, a word to sound spiritual. Truly. When you see Jesus saying truly, He's looking you in the eye through the Bible. Jesus, the Son of God, is looking you in the idea, in the eye, and he's saying, the idea is he's saying, listen to me. What I'm telling you, bank your life on. I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve thrones. 12 tribes of Israel. Wow. He wanted his disciples to know that. He wanted them to be encouraged that though they had left everything to follow Jesus, 
that they would not be fools in the end. And it is appropriate for these 12, not Judas, one would be added in the opening chapters of Acts, Matthias, but these 12 would be honored by the Lord for their unique sufferings. All of the apostles would suffer horribly, most of them be martyred, They would die. They would lose everything. They would be considered fools. They would be scorned. They would suffer so much for Jesus. And Jesus tells his men, you follow me. I'm going to reward you. And they will sit on 12 thrones with Christ. They will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, it's a bit of an aside here, but you notice that Jesus insists that what God prophesied through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and so on, Isaiah, that the tribes, the ten northern tribes, Israel, and the two southern tribes called the kingdom of Judah, that Israel and Judah, all twelve tribes, God had prophesied that though everyone scoffed and said that they were divided and gone, God prophesied and promised that he would renew all twelve tribes and recompromise reconstitute, rather, the the kingdom of Israel. And notice here that Jesus, his interpretation of Old Testament prophecy reads that there will be in the new day, the millennial kingdom and then the eternal kingdom, that there will be a renewal of the actual 12 tribes of Israel. That's Jesus's interpretive stance. And there's nothing here absolutely nothing. You have to make it up out of thin air to suggest, oh, well, we don't know it, but Jesus is talking actually not about Israel, but but the church comprised of Gentiles. You are taking something foreign and just reading it and dropping it into the text. These are Israelite men. These are Jewish men. They know who Israel is. They know the history of the 12 tribes. They know that when the Assyrians exiled, rather took away the 10 northern tribes, they know that not necessarily all the tribes are accounted for at this time. But Jesus insists it will take place. So they will be rewarded. And we spend maybe too little time as Christians thinking about what the New Testament in particular has to say about reward. It's there. Jesus has already encouraged uh, in the Sermon on the Mount men and women to follow and obey the law and obey him. And they will receive a reward. The Apostle Paul at the end of his life and ministry in 2 Timothy expected a reward for all of his sacrifice. Elders and overseers in 1 Peter chapter 5 are urged to shepherd the flock of God with eagerness, willingly, knowing that we will receive a crown of glory. So God is a rewarder of those who seek him. One of the paramount examples in the New Testament, in the, in the chapter of the hall of faith, if you will, Hebrews 11, is in Hebrews 11, verse 26, is Moses, who, who was a prince in Egypt. I mean, he had it all. And yet he abandoned those things, says Hebrews eleven twenty six, to go and pursue the surpassing riches of Jesus Christ. Moses didn't follow God for nothing. No man has ever followed God for nothing. God promises life to those who seek him. 
And so reward is real. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. In fact, actually, that's an expression of faith. If you think, oh, no, no, I don't really, I don't, I don't, I don't want the reward. I don't, uh, well, there's a problem there because you see you're, you're bumping up against who God is. God is rich and generous beyond telling. He is just. He does what is right. And so he will and does reward his servants for their service done unto him. And so be encouraged, brother or sister in Christ, that as you labor for Christ, that your labor is not in vain. But Jesus, after telling the disciples that they will receive a particularly unique reward, underscores it in verse 29 with a a promise to everyone, everyone who has left houses, brothers or sisters. In other words, whatever the cost has been of following Jesus Christ, you will be paid more, many, many, many times more in heaven to make up for any supposed loss. And there is real loss sometimes in following Jesus. Sometimes we, we do lose our, our money or our business. We lose some of our health. We lose sometimes relationships with family members and so on. And Jesus promises here that those who follow him and suffer loss will receive many times as much in the kingdom of heaven. But verse 30 is the real truth that Jesus is after. He's explained to Peter and the disciples the reality that in serving him, they will lose nothing in the end. Same is true of every believer who follows Christ. But the disciples at this point still have the mindset of the world. They they understand maybe that I can only enter the kingdom by faith. They have faith in Christ. They've left everything. They're, They're not depending on their own resources per se, but they're still thinking that they can advance their own way in the kingdom. They're thinking in terms of rank and self advancement. This will become very clear in chapter 20 when the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, comes to Jesus and asks for the highest positions of uh, honor on the right and the left. It's very clear these disciples take the kingdom promises literally. They believe that Jesus is the son of David, the anointed Messiah, that he's literally going to sit on the throne over Israel, and they're right in that. And so they are now thinking, how do I position myself so I, I get in front, front of the line and the other guys are in the back? That's the way the world operates, and they're still thinking that way. And so Jesus is out to correct them. He states the principle in verse 30. Many who are first will be last and the last first. That is the general principle that that goes through all the way to verse 28, which we read this morning. That many who are first will be last and the last first. In other words, those who seem as though they are in the front of the line in the kingdom of God, those whom you might 
think are the most notable, the most well-known, the most gifted, the most the, done perhaps the most service for God, have the biggest crowds and numbers and so forth, actually will probably behind, be behind those who no one ever knew, but they loved Jesus. They served in forgotten places. They maybe served a little small group of people. They, they maybe served Jesus in ways that were difficult and no one ever knew who they were. And they seemed like they were accompanied by failure and they will be first. That's the principle. So to underscore the principle, Jesus shares a parable in verses, chapter 20, verse 1 through verse 16. In verses 17 through 19, we have the ultimate example of Jesus himself, the servant. We have a bad example in the sons of Zebedee in verses 20 through 24. And then we have the basic principle restated. So that's the rest of our time this morning, okay? And we'll move quickly. First of all, the principle illustrated. The principle illustrated. The principle being verse 30. The first will be last and the last first. Jesus, to illustrate this principle and the call to service and humility, shares an illustration. It's a very, um, it's a very uh, lively illustration. It would have gotten the disciples' illustration. I mean, illustration, attention. See what happens when I don't have notes? You're thinking, no, Pastor Gabe, sorry, that happens all the time. Um, <laughs> He, he wants to get across to them the principle. And this would have been unthinkable for the disciples because here's the, the parable, the illustration. Uh, simply put, Jesus tells a story where there's a landowner. Owner. The, the vineyard, the grapes had to be picked. The crop would be in a very short season. And so you would need a lot of workers at the same time uh, up on the hill, Plaza Hill over here and. Uh, my parents' uh, former house where we live now, there's, there's some wild blueberries on low bush. And, and uh, Carissa, where she's from in Maine, is the Union, Maine, is the blueberry capital of Maine. It's where the Blueberry f- uh, State Festival is every year. And so over the years, God willing, as we live there, I want to try to encourage these low bush blueberries to grow. I mean, probably about an acre of them. And I'm just, I'm on a mission. I don't know how I'm going to do it. But the problem is, I'm going to have all these blueberries eventually, and if it's just me out there picking, then it's just going to be the squirrels and the chipmunks and the rabbits and the deer who get the blueberries. You understand that the blueberry crop comes in a very short period of time, and so you have to get a lot of workers, a lot of laborers there. That's true of just about any fruit crop. And it was true of the vineyard. The, the grapes would be on the vine, and you would need a lot of workers at this at one time and so the landowner goes to the the place in town where day laborers would stand for work I I remember uh, being out in uh, California about 12 years ago briefly as a family and and seeing at the local Home Depot there was a place where every morning where there would be a group of men standing the sun was not yet too hot but it was pretty hot there in Southern California and there's different fruit crops in that area. And every day, these day laborers would just stand around there. And, and guys who needed work would know where to show up and say, I need you, 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 you come with me. 
And that's what the principle here is. And the landowner picks the first group there early in the morning, around six in the morning. This is, this is dawn. This is early in the day to beat the heat. And he, he offers them a denarius. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a good price. Um, that's a, the price of a Roman soldier's daily earnings. And, and for these men who are probably, you know, uh, lowest of the low. These are guys who don't have a regular occupation. They, they're really dependent upon others for any scraps of work they can get. This is a really good wage. And so they start and they, they work hard because they're getting a denarius. They're, they're getting a whole denarius for a day's work. And they're pretty excited about that. A couple hours go by. Uh, and then uh, around nine o'clock, uh, uh, the landowner goes back to town. He gets a few more guys. He sends them in, goes in a few more hours later, goes in, uh, sends another crew in. Uh, finally, the day goes to about six o'clock, around five o'clock, only one hour of work left. He goes and he sees men who have been standing around all day. And he says, why have you, why are you standing here? They say, no one hired us. And he sends these guys over to the vineyard. Think about it. They got to walk to the vineyard, maybe not that far away. That's going to take a few minutes. They're just going to barely start gathering grapes and they're going to come back to town. So their, their shift was literally maybe 30 minutes or 45 minutes of work. And their shift was, was not in the heat of the day. It was at the, towards the end of the day. So all the men come back and the landowner gives to the men who worked last, who only worked for, say, 30 or 45 minutes, an hour at most, he gives them a full day's wages. This is shocking. The men are probably just overcome. I mean, this is, this is unthinkable. Nobody does this. Nobody pays you, first of all, that wage for a day, and then certainly no one pays you that wage for merely an hour's work. Well, what happens is that the other guys who worked longer, especially the guys started at six, think, well, wow, if those guys who only worked one hour got a full day's page, what are we getting? They're starting to anticipate this is going to be great. Wait till I tell my wife what I'm bringing home. We are going on vacation after all. I mean, I mean, they're going to, they, I mean, if these guys only a whole day's wages for one hour, I mean, they start multiplying it out. Uh, boy, I'm going to have a week or two's worth of, of income for one day's work. But instead, the landowner gives those guys the exact same amount as he did the guys who were at the last hour. And the guys who started early in the morning, and maybe we even here this morning, cry out, unfair, that's not fair, you can't do that. Verse 13, let these words sink in. The landowner, the Lord, looks these men in the eye. He's not harsh with them, but he says, friend, I am doing you not I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Yeah. Take what is yours and go. But here's the real key, verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Advancement and reward in the kingdom of heaven is by the sovereign will of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, not by the effort of any man or woman. 
There's no positioning. There's no jockeying for position in the kingdom. Salvation is by grace. And we understand that, in a sense, it's just for God to reward his servants. But in reality, not only is salvation by grace, any reward or whatsoever recognition is also of grace. And the disciples don't understand this yet. Reward in the kingdom is by sovereign will. It is the wish and will of God to determine rank in the kingdom. The last shall be first and the first last. Jesus is impressing a principle in his kingdom, in his church, among his people, that we are not to be like the world, strategizing somehow how we can get ahead in the kingdom of God, somehow how we can attain to a higher position, how we can get one over our brothers and sisters in Christ, how we can get more notoriety, more recognition, more influence, more power, more place, more position in the church or in the kingdom. Just the opposite. We should be considering ourselves the least and be content and thankful for any opportunity to serve. And the ultimate illustration of this is found in verses 17 through 19, and that is the example of our Lord himself. He, after the parable, he takes the disciples aside. He's about to go into Jerusalem. This is a significant moment in the gospel and for us as a church family. We've been, we've been going through the gospel of Matthew now for a couple of years, I think, off and on, but it's been a couple of years. And we are now turning the corner to the last week or so of our Lord's life. We've come to a significant point where he's about to go up to Jerusalem, where he will teach, but where he will be betrayed, where he will suffer, where he will die, and where we will learn of his resurrection. He has told his disciples repeatedly. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, this, we're used to this by now. Jesus taking his disciples aside and saying to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles, mock, scourge, crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. He has repeated this message. He wants his men to understand why he is here. He is here to save his people from their sins. They still think he's here to save his people from the Roman occupiers. They don't understand how sinful they are. They don't understand that they cannot be atoned, their sins cannot be atoned for with the blood of bulls and goats. They still have yet to understand Isaiah 53 and the need for a Messiah who will suffer and bleed and die and make justification, propitiation for sins. Jesus has told them and told them and told them and it's not all bad news. It's, it's hard to hear that he's going to suffer. It's hard to hear that he's going to die. But each time he's ended it with, and be raised. He's claimed that he is going to rise from the dead. This is pretty 
Amazing. This is pretty exciting news. They've seen him bring other people from the, back from the dead. This shouldn't be out of, the, out of the realm of possibility for them at this point. But it goes in one ear and out the other because Jesus' plan, the Father's plan, is not their plan. And even there, what an example. Have you ever served in your family or in the church and felt like nobody knows what you do or appreciates what you do? Have you ever felt like you're not understood? The, 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 the effort or the pain in your service or in your act is, isn't really understood or appreciated? Think about it. Jesus is about to bear the heaviest load that any man or woman, anyone would ever bear. He's going to endure the greatest pain that anyone will ever bear, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. He knows he's about to go through an experience that, that will never be replicated by anyone. And when you're in pain, don't you, wanna, don't you want somebody to understand? Even though you don't know, they know all of what you're experiencing. Don't you want just some kind of companionship in your difficulty? You want to be understood. And here are the men that he's closest with. He's not married. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have the companion in that way. These men, many of them who are married, and even especially Peter, James, and John, these are his friends. These are his his companions. And he's telling them again and again, this is why I'm here. I'm telling you, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm telling you, they're going to betray, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm telling you, they're going to hand me over to be delivered. I'm telling you, I'm going to beaten, be beaten and whipped, scourged. I'm telling you, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise on the third day. And they don't get it. What an act of service that Jesus would serve us and serve them by not only taking the lowest place, humbling himself to the lowest place, but even the humility and in some sense the humiliation of doing it alone, of going through with it when no one but his heavenly father understood what he was doing, when even his closest friends couldn't even comprehend or appreciate what he's about to do. Oh, how often do I get resentful? Maybe, you know, we can in our family. I've done this. The girls don't appreciate her. (laughs) How petty. So Jesus, if you're wondering what it is like to serve, Jesus is the ultimate example. He is the ultimate example which is followed in verses 20 through 24 with the exact opposite. We have a parable, an illustration of the principle. We have the supreme example in our Lord Jesus Christ himself who becomes intentionally lowest and last. And then thirdly, we have the principle demonstrated by negative example. We see the opposite of what Jesus is teaching. Uh, and and we're, we want to be hard on 
the sons of Zebedee, James and John. We want to be hard to the mother. How, how um, obnoxious is that? But we have to understand that's in us. That kind of sense of looking out for ourselves, that we, are being, we want to be noticed. What's my place in, in the family, in the church, in the kingdom of God? This is us. This is the way the world operates. This is our sinful hearts. And it's pretty ugly, isn't it? Verse 20, the mother of the sons of... I mean, the guys don't even have the nerve to, to go to Jesus on their own. I mean, these are grown men. Mom, can you help us? <laughs> you know, Mom, will you go ask Jesus if we could have the first place of that? I mean, you know, uh, or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's Mom is like, boys... I want you to ask Jesus. For, no, Mom, we can't do that. No, Mom, we can't do that. Boys, I want you to ask. <laughs> it could be one of those, too. We don't know. However it happens, the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes to Jesus, bows low. He is the king. She recognizes that, and she makes a request. And she believes the kingdom is coming. She believes Jesus is going to sit on David's throne, and she's absolutely right in that. All that is going to come true. And she asks for the most authoritative, most honored positions in the kingdom on that has been promised, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, for her sons to sit on his, one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. In other words, they still are operating with a crossless Christianity. Health, wealth, gospel all over the place serve Jesus and you'll be healthy happy and rich she doesn't get it and Jesus says you don't understand he challenges them a little bit are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink in other words have you taken in guys what I've been saying to you you want to go through that with me? And in ignorance and in innocent zeal, they say, verse 22, we are able. No, they're not. But apparently they say that in sincere love for Jesus. So there's a combination here of, of carnal self-advancement, but also true, sincere loyalty to Christ. Jesus recognizes my cup, verse 23, you shall drink. They will be martyred. They will suffer. But, he says, my, to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it's for those who have been prepared by my Father. It's not self-effort. It's not the work of man. It's the will of the sovereign that determines not only salvation, but place in the kingdom. It is grace all the way through, all the way through. And so Jesus brings it all together in verses 24 and following. The the other 10, when they heard about this little episode, they are ticked off. They are indignant, and, and we would be too. But it may be not so much that they're indignant that 
these guys would even do or think of such a thing, they may be indignant, likely, that these guys got in front of the line, asked first. There's no indication that only the two sons of Zebedee are the rascals and the rest of them are humble, lowly men who get the idea. No. There's competition among them. There's competition. There's, there's a comparing one another. There's a looking at one another for value and for place. And oh, can this happen in church, can it? Among all of us. We get our sense of value and worth by what we do visibly for Jesus. We become jealous of one another, maybe recognition that someone else has received and we haven't. So we're right here with these disciples. They're indignant. And by nature, we're, we're like those laborers that worked at the beginning of the day and saying, in sense, oh God, surely I deserve better. So Jesus, hearing this, calls them, verse 25, to himself and says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. He's thinking of Herod and he's thinking of Pilate. Those men don't only not share, they kill anybody they think is coming around them, taking their place. And there are some people who may not kill literally in the church, in the, in the kingdom, when they sense competitors or if they don't get their way, but they'll kill with their words, they'll kill with their looks, they'll kill with their silence. They'll, they must rule, they must have the first place, they must have the last word, they must have the influence and so forth or else. Jesus says, you know this, you know that the Gentiles, in other words, these, these sinful Men, Lord, Lord over them. They rule, they dominate. They dominate by force. They dominate by power. They dominate by fear. But, Jesus says, it is not, verse 26, this way among you. You make a break with the world. You don't operate by the world's system, the world's ways. This is how you operate. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. You want to go higher and esteem with God and with men, you go lower. You serve, you serve, you serve. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Whoever wishes shall be your servant. Servant is one thing. Slave It's a reminder, your life, if you're in Christ, is not your own. My life is not my own, meaning my time ultimately is not my own. I'm a manager of, I'm a steward of what God has given to me. But whatever I have, when it's called upon by God, I am nothing more, nothing less than a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that I am in some sense a slave to my brothers and sisters. Not to please them, That doesn't mean I do whatever anybody wants whenever they tell me, but means that my time and my life are not my own. I'm here to serve. I've been sent to serve by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus calls us to this high standard and states plainly that he is the ultimate example. 
We saw this up in verses 17 through 19. Now Jesus spells it out. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We are to serve like Jesus. We start the real hard place, actually, first of all, is not the church. That, that's relatively easy. Usually that has set times, maybe of gathering, set tasks. We'll come back to that. The real hard place to start serving is our family, our home. Husbands, how do we serve our wives? I'm, I'm asking myself. I'm not looking over there, but I'm asking myself, how do we serve our wives with our prayers, words of encouragement, thoughtful things we might do, avoiding things that maybe we want to do, we think should be the way, but we know that is not her preference. Wives, how do you serve your husbands? How do we, mothers and fathers, serve our children when we know for a good portion of their life they really have no idea all that we do for them? They'll know someday when they have their own children. But do we resent all that we do for them, or do we serve them, and not merely out of duty, but as unto the Lord Jesus? Children, kids, Got kids here this morning? Kids, you here? You awake? Still got you? Jesus is calling you to serve your family too. Sometimes that's hard. Can you serve your mom or your dad? Help clean up a little bit? You want to shock your dad or your mom? You want to shock them? You go up to them unexpectedly on some day and say, Mom or Dad, is there something I could do to serve you today? Right? Try it. Older kids, young adults, our culture says, our culture says to you of all people, you don't have to serve anyone. This is a time in life for you just to serve yourself. You just do whatever you want to do. You just, you, it's all about you. Jesus is calling you to deny the world, to serve your family, to serve his church. We need you. And we do need to serve not only in the, in, the, in, the, in the family, but we do need to serve in the church. I'll tell you right now, this church, we're a small team. In God's providence, we, we were usually, we, we were 60 members uh, about three, four years ago, regularly around 120 people, um, under various reasons of providence, you say, what, what happened? You know, now we probably average, what, 70, 75, if that, on a Sunday morning. Uh, we have 50 members, maybe. I haven't done an exact count recently. We are a very small crew. And there are usually the same people who are doing the same things. I'll suggest to you there's pretty much three families that clean up after us when we have a fellowship luncheon. I, I learned that last week. I just kind of watched it's pretty much three families, a few others, but who did all the work. I'm not saying that as a, as a rebuke. I'm just, just telling you. This is a time in the life of this church. It's all hands on deck. 
If you want to be served, hopefully we serve you. But you got somewhere else you got to go for that. We need you. And the Lord, apart from the need, what do you need me to do? It's, it's just a servant's heart. Part of what we learned in Sunday school when we studied uh, the book and service, you know, part of serving is just being there. Understanding that your presence means a lot. It, it does. It just, just very presence means something. To go, you don't know who the Lord's going to have you greet that day, talk to. I, I can't, obviously, I want to. I can't get to everybody on a Sunday and talk to them, encourage them. The elders can't. You can. Not everybody, but you can get to those around you. We have needs. There's plenty of opportunity to serve. Jesus is calling us to take the lowest place. And the reality is that most of us who serve in the ways we serve in the church, probably no one will ever know. No one will ever know what we did cleaning up. Saturday, maybe we stopped by, I don't know, we just, whatever, we, nursery. I mean, whoever thinks of nursery as the place of greatest service, I, I'm, I'm, I'm half joking when I say I fully expect in glory in the kingdom for there to be nurse, nursery workers ahead of me in terms of rewards in the kingdom. It just, Charlie, I completely expect Charlie will be in front of a line per se than me and a whole other lot of pastors. Not because we did anything wrong or, or so forth, but because that man just served so thoughtless, thoughtlessly of, of, of himself and any advancement. He just loved serving this church. And I never, ever once had any inclination or, from him that he needed to be appreciated by anyone for it. Fascinating. Why? Because his only motive was pleases my Lord. And that was enough. This is the principle. Whoever wishes to be great shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first shall be your slave. The Lord is calling us to serve him and to serve one another. To leave off the world's ways, to leave off self-dependence, to leave off comparing ourselves to others, and to just ask the Lord, Lord, how would you have me serve? And that the motive for our serving not be recognition, not be appreciation here, but that we entrust, just as we entrust our salvation to a gracious God, that we entrust our reward to our sovereign, generous Father. And I think, I don't think, I know, I know when we are in glory together, we're not going to be jealous. We are going to be rejoicing in the generous generosity of our God. We are going to rejoice that some of the most unappreciated, most unknown, most forgotten people are going to be some of those that are exalted by Christ in the kingdom. We're all going to be saying, who is that? Who's that? Oh, this is where he served. This is what he did. Nobody ever knew it. God has honored him. God has honored her by placing her, him or her in a place of honor in the kingdom. May God grant that we have the attitude of our Lord. Serve in our families. Serve in his church.
all for his glory and honor. Let's pray. This is our prayer. We ask, O oh God, give us a heart like our Lord. In his name we ask, amen.